Thank you, David. <laughs> you know, uh, I guess I'm, I'm nervous. I know I'm nervous. I'm quite uh, awed by being up here. Uh, my oldest son told me today if I got nervous, to, I could try one of two things. I could either curl my toes up or imagine everybody was sitting out there in the underwear, and I guess I forgot that. I, I am pleased to be here. I don't want to drag this thing out. When I got sober, I couldn't sleep, and I don't know how many of you have heard me say that, but I literally, it was about six weeks before I could sleep over 15 minutes at a time, and I'm sure that's what God wanted me to do. One of my sponsors, Ralph, has a, quite a tape library, and, and he suggested I listen to some tapes, indicated I might could use some of that information. And Somewhere in the first two or three tapes, uh, Bryant came along, and, and I don't know, he hit my whole card, I guess, if any of you have ever played poker. I think he, he thinks a lot like I thought I thought or think I think or, or something I identified with him. I've been thinking for several days uh, how to introduce him. Uh, you know, I know he's just like the rest of us, but he means an awful lot to me. Uh, it's almost inconceivable that that God would let somebody help me that quit drinking four or five months before I ever started. Uh, I think that's one of the significant things about our disease is I understand every word he's saying. Without any further ado, I know you'll all make welcome, and I know you'll get a lot out of what Bryant's got to say. Bryant B. from Dobson, North Carolina. Thank you, Timmy. I'm Bryant, and I'm an alcoholic. By God's grace and because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous does work in my life. I haven't had a drink of alcohol since Christmas Day of 1960. And for this, I'm eternally grateful for sobriety. You see, I came here just to keep breathing in and out. I've been here twice. One time, I was young. And I had all the answers. And I thought I was a little too good for you. And then I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous almost dead. And I thought I wasn't good enough for you. But I'm glad that the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. And that desire is with me today stronger than it was when I got here. And I hope it gets stronger every day of my life because I haven't seen many people stay sober that didn't have the desire to stay sober. And I have it today. I have an awful lot to lose today. So I need Alcoholics Anonymous worse than I needed it when I got here. I didn't have anything to lose when I got here. But today I have an awful lot to lose. People like you all over the world who love me, I'd lose you, and I don't want to lose you. Through this program and the grace of God, uh, some good name for myself and a reputation has been built, and I don't want to lose that. That's about all I have is my good name. I don't want to lose it, so I need Alcoholics Anonymous. 
and I need you worse now than I did over 21 years ago. And I hope I'll always feel that way. I do today. I want to thank Ralph, Jimmy, and all the committee uh, for having Marin and I down here. It's just been a, a super week. We got here a little early, Tuesday, and we've enjoyed Nashville. We've enjoyed uh, Opryland and the Opry and playing golf with Ralph and Harry and Jimmy and all the boys. We just enjoyed it. It, it was a, a super, super week, and, and I want to thank you for it. I want to thank you for asking me and having me here with some of my dearest friends, Cleve and Nell and Chris. I haven't, haven't seen them and been with them for a while, and they're great people. Joe and, and Lou Bell, just super people in the Pope of A.A. over there. Of course, I could have missed him this weekend. I was with him last weekend, but he's one of my favorites. And, and I want to thank you for letting me be a part of this and for letting you be a part of me. Thank you. I didn't want to be an alcoholic worse than anybody I've ever known in my life. I never have met anybody that, that took a drink and said, here's to it, I'm going to be an alcoholic. Never have seen anybody like that. But I didn't want to be an alcoholic worse than anybody I've ever seen. I denied my alcoholism till it almost killed me. I took the word of our doctor when he accurately diagnosed a gallbladder, infected gallbladder. I took his word and accepted his treatment when he said I had something wrong with my spleen. I took his word and accepted treatment when he said I had appendicitis. <coughs> I had a lot of things, and I took his word for it, and I accepted it and accepted the treatment. But when he said I was an alcoholic, I said, he's crazy. I want another opinion. And that opinion was mine. And I decided that I was not an alcoholic. But you know, that's the thing about our disease that we have. You know, as long as you say you ain't had it, you get worse. You really do. And I said, I didn't have it. And I got worse. And on every occasion, I just got worse and worse and worse. But the day I said I got it, the day I said I've got alcoholism and I submitted myself for treatment, then I got better. I got better. Just like any other, just like any other illness in the world, if you accept the treatment for it and know you got it and do what they tell you, you get better. You get better if you're supposed to, and evidently I'm supposed to, because I got better. But as long as I denied it, as long as I denied it, it was a devastating thing in my life. I didn't want to be an alcoholic for, and this goes back for many, many years. My daddy was an alcoholic, and I didn't like what it did to him. I didn't like what it made him. I didn't like what it did to our family. 
I didn't like anything about it. I detested alcohol, and I said I'll never drink as long as I live. Never drink as long as I live. Okay, I didn't like alcohol. I had some things wrong with me, though, that we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous, the causes uh, of alcoholism. I look back in my life, and I had anxiety from a very early age. I had a bad case of anxiety. Everybody in our family had anxiety, plus other things. You know, I don't think anybody in our family was really put together right. There was something wrong with us. You know, you just, they'd ask me a question if I said I didn't know. That's good enough. That was a good answer. But, you know, we lived in a state of anxiety at my house. We never knew when my daddy was coming home, if he was coming home, who he was coming home with, or what kind of condition he'd been when he got there. So we had anxiety at our house, and I had the worst case of it, the worst case of it. I had an awful lot of fear early in my life. And these, I don't know what I was afraid of. I don't know where these fears, I don't think they were, the fears were founded, I, uh, they were unfounded. But that fear of impending doom, I can remember that ever since I can remember. Everything was always going to be bad or something was going to happen. And I can remember that a long, long time, and my fears got worse. A great deal of frustrations early in my life. You know, I told you that my daddy was an alcoholic. He, he was a tobacco man. He was a very capable man, capable of making a lot of money. But if he's an alcoholic, he's more capable of spending it than he was making it. And I couldn't understand why we had to come up short a lot. I didn't understand why the other kids in the neighborhood rode a new bike and I had to ride a rusty one. I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand some of the things that went on. And this frustration led to some resentments. And the resentments led to hate. I had another thing or two wrong with me. I never was satisfied. Nothing seemed to please me. I'd get a blue suit, and I'd buy it. Get home and wish I'd have got a brown one. I'd be sitting in the middle of this room, and I said, why didn't I sit over here? And I'd move. And I wouldn't be there but a few minutes, and I said, I was in the right place to begin with. So never was totally satisfied. I never did seem to fit in with a lot of groups and a lot of people. And I had one more glaring thing wrong. I was a liar. I don't mean after I started drinking. I started lying right after I started talking. And I got real good at it. I could use this. I would make me look better or you look worse whatever the occasion might call for that would pick me up and put me right there where I'd be right and you'd be wrong. I'd lie. And I practiced it enough till I got real good at it. And one day when I was about 15 and a half years old, some guys in our neighborhood had a party and they asked me to come along and I went. 
And they had some wine at this party. It was blackberry wine. I'll never forget it. And they said, come on and have a drink. Now, when I... I never did say I wasn't going to drink any wine. I said I wasn't going to drink any liquor. So I had a glass of wine. And before it went around to everybody, I had another glass of wine. And when that second glass of wine went down, things started happening. Things started happening in my life. I started feeling better. The fears seemed to just float away. The anxiety, everything was cool. Frustrations, no. Hate, I loved everybody. I was feeling better than I'd ever felt in my life, but there was still one thing wrong. I wasn't satisfied. I said, I know if two drinks will make me feel this good, then four drinks will make me feel twice as good. Somewhere between two and four, I got in trouble. Now, that's hard to do, but I did. From the very first time that I drank alcohol, I was unable to control it. I was unable to control the amount that I took into my system. And I never was able to control it unless I was in an environment that called for control. And I didn't like that, and I didn't go to many places that control. I had to control the amount that I drank. Sometimes situations controlled the amount that I drank. But how I'm telling you about how I felt on the inside. I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to have all I could drink. All I could drink. So I never could control the amount that I drank once I started. And the very first time that I drank alcohol, it was important to me. Now, they say that you're an alcoholic once alcohol becomes important in your life. And it became important to me from the very first time I had a drink. I got drunk that night. And the next morning, when I got up, I was sick. Oh, was I sick. But it didn't seem to bother me because I knew that the night before that I had found briefly something that would make me feel good. And I knew that there had to be some elixir. I knew that there had to be some amount of some kind of alcoholic beverages that I could drink that would make me two feet taller than anybody, two steps ahead of anybody, and just a little bit smarter. I knew that there had to be that amount. And I pursued that. And I never did find the right kind, and I never did find the right amount. I tried every way that I could to control my drinking. I never knew much about social drinking at all. My social drinking went like this. Somebody said, I think I'll have a drink. And I said, so shall I. And I don't know if I ever really wanted to drink socially or not. I don't, they say that social drinkers don't understand us. And that's all right, because I don't understand them either. 
I don't understand how anybody could put about an ounce of liquor or alcohol into a glass like this and mix it up and walk around all night maybe and just drink one. Some of them don't even drink it all. They leave some in it. I don't understand that. And it's all right if they don't understand me because if I never could get enough to, that I could really buzz it up, I never would drink any. Now, I had trouble with my drinking at an early age. I wasn't drinking like my friends. My friends would say this. We'd be out drinking. They said, I've had a little too much to drink. I think I'll go home. Not me. I'd go to town when I had too much to drink. That's a bad place to go when you've had too much to drink. It's still bad. It was bad then. It's bad now. But that's why I started getting into trouble. But I never did plan to get in trouble at all. I always just intended to have a little bit of fun. Always was going to have a little fun, and it ended up it's trouble. That's the trouble with trouble. It always starts out as fun. I never have known anybody yet to go out and say, I'm going out and get in some trouble tonight. <laughs> Just don't do it. And I didn't have any intentions of getting in all that trouble. I was just going to have a little bit of fun. And it didn't turn out that way. So I knew that I wasn't drinking like my friends. I had a little talk with myself. I didn't know anybody that was much smarter than I was. So I talked to myself quite a bit. And I said, look, you might be in a little bit of trouble here. You know how it is with people that can't hold their liquor. You know, they slur their words and they stagger and they look sloppy all the time. And, and people talk about them and that's the way you're doing. You are not holding your liquor. Instead of the dog wagging the tail, the tail's wagging the dog. And you've got to get control of this, and you've got to get a hold of yourself. So what's wrong? And in 45 seconds, I had an answer. I knew what was wrong. I didn't have any responsibilities. And if I, I figured that if I had some responsibilities, if I had a family that I could devote most of my time to, or at least half of my time, and give me less time to drink, then I could live a more well-balanced life and everything would be all right. But I, yeah, I see you kind of smiling at that, and, and you know that responsibilities was not my problem. I didn't handle responsibilities much better than I handled liquor. This, but I thought at that time that this really was my problem, so I set about to, to gain a family, you know. And back then it was popular if you got married to have a family. So... So I, I started looking for a woman. And you know, you have to have a woman to get married. And so I found the woman that I was to marry, and we went to our family doctor to get a blood test. I told him what I came for, and it, this was the first time that anybody ever put a finger on my drinking. He said, have a seat. I'll be with you in a minute. So in about 15 minutes, he came in, and he started telling me about alcoholism. And I didn't understand what he was talking about. He said that he had a, 
a forum for alcoholics out on the edge of town and that he'd gone to some school and studied about alcoholism and he knew about alcoholism and and I figured he he was getting a little senile and he'd or he'd flipped or something like that. So I said, I'll just hear him out. Finally he got out what he wanted to say. He said he wanted to talk about me and my drinking. He said, I've observed your drinking habit and pattern over the past few months, and I'm of the opinion that you are a serious problem drinker and in the early stages of alcoholism. If you can stop now, there are many productive years ahead of you. But if you don't, I can't promise you much. And being of resentful nature, I resented that. I resented it, and I told him, that if he'd kindly give me that piece of paper that I came for, that I would be on my way, and if I ever needed him, I'd call him. Real smart-like. Real smart-like. Well, I had to call him. I had to call him, and I did real good for a while. Two or three weeks. I didn't... I didn't drink anything but beer. An awful lot of it, but I didn't drink anything but beer. Now, that is a job in itself, drinking beer. You know, when you have a, a, a large capacity for alcohol and you try to satisfy that by drinking beer, that's work. I mean, you have to sit there after dinner before you feel anything. I mean, just drink all and go into the bathroom, you know, all kinds of interruptions. And then finally, finally, you start getting a little buzz on them. And, and I knew this wasn't going to happen. Uh, this wasn't going to be too popular with me too long, this beer drinking. And I stood it as long as I could. It wasn't satisfying me. I wanted something that would get on down there and do the job. Because I was busy. And I had things to do. And I couldn't sit around a beer parlor all day waiting for that beer to do what it's supposed to do. And I knew that liquor would do it in just a matter of a few minutes, and I could get on about my business. So I got back on the hard stuff again. You know that. It didn't, the beer didn't satisfy. I was back on the hard stuff again, and soon I was all the way back into the cycle. All the way back, around the clock drinking. Well, I'd been drinking around the clock. It was just a different beverage. And it did put an awful lot of weight on me. But I got back into the hard stuff and the same old thing. Well, one day, I don't know if this ever happened to you or not, but one day it became of paramount importance to everybody on this earth that I stopped drinking. They were, that was a topic of conversation everywhere I went. I couldn't go anywhere and not hear it. I went to work and they said, why don't you quit? And I got mad and went home. And my wife says, why don't you quit? And I got mad at her and I went to my mother's. Yeah, that's where all grown men go when nobody understands. They go to their mother's. And she said, why don't you quit? I went out to get something else to drink. And they wouldn't sell it to me with money in my pocket and you can't buy a drink. They said, won't you quit? I went into a public restroom that day and a guy that I've never seen in my life said, man, you need to get off that booze. You're in bad shape. 
I guess it was pretty obvious, but they usually always say we're the last ones to know. And, and I certainly seemed like I was the last one to know. And I said, is that important to everybody? I'll quit. I'll quit and I'll just forget about it. But there wasn't one thing wrong. I never had quit before. I didn't know how to quit. You know, heretofore, if I'd start getting a little nervous, I'd just take me a drink and, and that'll take care of the shakes, you know, just like that. But this time I'd quit. So I didn't know how to handle it. But I'd been drunk for a long time, clinically drunk every day. I don't mean there was a day past that I didn't drink alcohol because there was. I wasn't falling down drunk every day. I wasn't laying in the floor every day. But I just never did run out of gas. You know, I just kept on. So this had been for a number of years. And I didn't know how to quit. But it was a good time to quit. It's Monday. That's a good time to quit. And I didn't have any liquor. And that's a good reason to quit. So I just quit. But as Monday grew longer, I grew shakier. And when my wife got home that afternoon, I was vibrating. I wasn't shaking anymore. I was vibrating. I looked like one of those paint shakers that you shake up paint in the store. And I asked her to call that doctor that I'd insulted a few months before. And she dialed the phone and made me do the talking. And I apologized to that good doctor. I, I don't believe I'd, the first time I'd apologized to anybody in my life. I don't believe I'd apologize to him if I hadn't needed him. But I said, if you'll come over right away, I need some help. It seemed like an eternity, but he finally got there. And he gave me a couple of shots that night. And the next day, he carried me out to the funny farm to sober up. Now, this was the first drying out experience that I'd ever had. And it was very unusual. I went out to this place, and there was about 10 or 12 guys there. And they were the most unusual people I'd ever seen in my life. They knew everything. They'd been everywhere once and seen everything twice. And they knew all about the stuff to take. You know, I learned all about the pills and the tablets out there from them. Now, I learned all about the nalls and the talls and the uppers and downers. I learned all about the things that you can drink other than, than whiskey and, and stuff. I learned about stuff you can buy in a drug store, the grocery store. I, I listened very closely to every word they said and stayed drunk for seven or eight more years anyhow. But they fascinated me. Soon I was back at the farm in short order, to dry out again. This should have told me something. Before, I'd drunk eight years, and I was sick. This time, just a very few weeks, maybe three or four weeks, and I was back out there in worse shape than I was the first time. Now, that would tell your average person that, some, that it's a progressive illness, but I didn't believe it because I didn't want to believe it. You know, I didn't want to quit drinking. I wanted the bad things to quit happening to me. I wanted people off of my back. I wanted a little bit of respect, like Rodney Dangerfield, you know. I wanted a little bit of respect. That's all I wanted. But it didn't happen that way. We'll make a long story short. I went to every drying out place that was open prior to 1960. 
at least once. Usually once was enough for anybody to sober me up. Some of them did try it twice. But as long as anybody would get me sober, I'd drink again. It was that simple. It was that simple. Now, when I first started going to these drying out places, it was some of the more exclusive ones. And then the hospitals, which wasn't too bad. And then some of the less exclusive ones, which, you know, wasn't too bad. And then I started going to the asylum, the state hospital, and that's bad. <laughs> but I asked for it. You know, I never, I had a bad habit. I never did bother anybody too much, uh, you know. I never did win many fights. I lost them all. But I had, a, I had a habit, I just wouldn't go home. I wouldn't go home. And, you know, I've heard a lot of alcoholics say, I took the geographic cure. I went to New York, got another new job opportunity. Or we moved out to L.A. to get a new start. I never was able to do that. I was either always drunk or, or or sick or locked up, you know, I never was able to make that big move that everybody makes. But I never did go anywhere. I might, you know, I'd stay gone from home seven or eight weeks. Sometimes I'd never be gone over three miles from my house. <laughs> they knew that I hadn't gone anywhere, they just didn't know whether I was all right or not. And so usually they'd send a deputy sheriff after me with a lunacy warrant and they'd fire. They didn't have any trouble at all finding me. They found me every time. But they knew that I, I was all right. I just didn't know where. They just didn't know where I was. You know, there's an old saying back home that goes like this, He that leaveth and returneth not stayeth gone for a long time. <laughs> and that's, that's the way they figured me. I, I saw a TV show one night. I see three girls working in a restaurant. The name of the show's Alice, and one of them's daddy came home. He'd been gone 30 years, and he walked in. It's just like he'd had dinner with them that day. <laughs> How you doing? You know, they said, where have you been? Nowhere. Yeah, well, it's hard to go nowhere in 30 years. <laughs> and they kept asking him where. He said, well, you know how time passes when you're having fun. <laughs> so this is... My staying away from home, I asked for these lunacy warrants. And they'd pick me up and they'd send me over to the asylum. And one of these trips to the asylum, while I was gone, my wife heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. And she called two members of Alcoholics Anonymous to come and see me. And I went. I, I was agreeable. I didn't want to stop drinking. I was just willing to talk to him. And when those two guys got there, I knew one of them. He was the worst drunk I'd ever seen in my life. But he was dressed up, and he had on a suit, and he looked handsome. I said, by God, Ham has learned how to drink like a gentleman. <laughs> I'll go with him anywhere. And I went to Alcoholics Anonymous to learn how to drink and not be sick. Well, with all my intelligence, it still didn't take me for about 10 minutes 
to figure out that I was in the wrong place if I wanted to learn how to drink. Because they were talking about sobriety. And I didn't want to hear about sobriety. Some of them were talking about long-term sobriety. And you know how you can look at them like that. And some of them, one guy said, I, I hope I can stay sober the rest of my life, a day at the time. And almost threw up. <laughs> they weren't saying what I wanted to hear. So I, I guess I was 25 and a half, 26 years old at that time. And I looked around the room and I saw some bald heads like old Joe's there. And I said, hmm, I'm too young to be an alcoholic. I'm too young. These are nice enough people, but when I get over the hill, I, you know, this will be a good place for me to come. I looked around and I saw a guy that I'd known all my life, and, he, and this guy was a smart businessman at one time. And, and alcohol had dealt him a, a low blow. He had a little bit of brain damage. And I said, I'm not like that. I haven't had any brain damage. Didn't take into consideration he still had that business. And he'd been sober about four years, three or four years at that time. Didn't take into consideration that. I said, I'm not like that. There were even some winos there. And I said, I'm not like that. And I started looking for excuses to get away from Alcoholics Anonymous my first night. And when you do things like that, you don't have much of a chance in staying around and staying sober. The people were nice to me. And I remember that, and I don't want any of us to forget it. I can remember the look in those people's eyes. And a drunk knows, a drunk looks at eyes and he knows whether you're sincere or not. And I looked in those people's eyes and they were sincere. I knew they wanted to help me. I knew that they had an answer. They said, we have found an answer. We have found a solution. I knew that. And that's what brought me back to Alcoholics Anonymous, those people and how nice they were. They explained to me the progressiveness of the illness of alcoholism. They told me that over any given period of time that my alcoholism would never get better. It'd get worse. I understood the progressiveness of the illness of alcoholism, but I couldn't accept it in my life. I could not accept that for me because I was denying that I had alcoholism. So I couldn't accept that in my life. They explained to me the elevator process, that in alcoholism you can mash that button and get off on any level. They told me that I didn't have to go all the way to the bottom. They told me that I didn't have to go to Skid Row that I could mash that button and get off now. And I understood it. I understood it, but I couldn't accept it in my life. They were good to me. It still took me three or four meetings to get away from them. They were everywhere. I'd turn around in the store, and one of them said, How are you getting along, Brian? I started in the liquor store one day, and one of them hollered at me and says, Where are you going? They were everywhere, but finally I got away from them to go out 
and do my thing my way. That's what I wanted to do. And I did it. And it almost killed me. You're talking about alcoholism being a progressive illness. Well, it had certainly progressed in my life. And you talk about AA messing up your drinking. Well, my drinking was already messed up, but AA demolished, totally and completely demolished any type of control that I might have. So I went back out, and I couldn't seem to get a handle on anything. I was going downhill at an accelerated pace, and I couldn't seem to grasp anything. Everything that I touched would blow up. Everybody that I touched, I contaminated. Everything that I tried to do, I loused up. And I couldn't drink. And I knew I couldn't drink. And I couldn't quit. And I knew that I couldn't quit. I'd have that feeling in here. I'd have that feeling in here. And I'd pour down a few drinks and it'd get better. The vice wouldn't be as tight. Or I'd have that feeling in here, that terrible pain right here. And I'd take a few drinks and that pain would go away. And I'd hurt right in here. It'd go away sometimes. And sometimes it stayed. I found myself going to places that I ordinarily wouldn't go to, places that I wouldn't frequent ordinarily. And I'd ask myself a question, what are you doing in this dive? And I couldn't answer that question. I didn't have an answer for that question, but I was back the next night at the same place. And it didn't seem to bother me quite as bad that next night. And the next night, and the next. And soon this became a hangout of mine. That's alcoholism as I know it. I found myself associating with people whom I ordinarily wouldn't associate with, and I said, what are you doing with this bunch of yo-yos? I couldn't answer. Didn't know why I was with them. But I was back the next night with them, and the next, and the next. And soon they became friends of mine. That's alcoholism as I know it. Everything within me said, don't go. Don't be with them. But I was there. And I couldn't explain why I was there. That's alcoholism. My granddaddy, when I was a kid, taught me some principles. The same principles that we have today in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The principle of honesty, purity, love, and unselfishness. He taught me those as a child. And he said, son, if you obey these principles, you'll never want for anything. He never did. He was a man that never did want for anything. But I started sacrificing these principles. And the very first principle that I sacrificed was the principle of honesty. And when I did it, something in here says it's wrong. It's wrong. But I did it. 
And the next time I did it, it didn't hurt quite as bad. And the next time, it didn't hurt quite as bad. And I started sacrificing these principles one after another until soon I had no principles to live by. And when you have no principles to live by, then you have nothing to live for. I will assure you of that. And I had nothing to live for. I wanted to die. I wanted—I didn't want to stay dead. Yeah, I just wanted to die for about three days. <laughs> I wanted to die about three days and let everybody see. Go through that period of mourning, and then maybe they'd have something a little bit nicer for me from then on. But I didn't have any principles to live by, and, and you don't have much of a life when you don't have any principles to live by. It was only in existence. And this is where my alcoholism went to the very bottom. I found myself in my own hometown, on Main Street, on Skid Row, living on Skid Row, panhandling from some of my former associates, people that I'd gone to school with, to satisfy my drinking habits. Nothing seemed to matter to me any longer except another drink. I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of it. Neither Am I ashamed of it that that's what it took to bring me to Alcoholics Anonymous? There's a step in our program that would allow me to do some of those amends. This is the end of side one. Please turn the cassette over now. But it was Christmas of 1960, and I had no idea it was Christmas. It was another day for me. And I had a bottle of vodka, and I, I, and I had that feeling, the vice, the pain, the hurt. And it was there stronger than it had ever been before in my life. And I said, I've got to hurry, but I've got an answer for it. And I drank this bottle of vodka, 100-proof vodka. And the more I drank, the tighter the vice got. The more I drank, the sharper the pain was. The more I drank, the worse the hurt was. And finally I realized that alcohol wasn't going to do it for me anymore. The only thing that I could depend on on the face of this earth to relieve this pain that I couldn't stand had deserted me. And I did exactly the same thing that you did. When it left you, when it deserted you, and you no longer could trust it, it wasn't your friend anymore, it was our enemy. When it happened to you, you panicked, and I did too. I said, what am I going to do? What did I do? Same thing you did. Same thing you did. I said, God help me. God help me. If you'll give me one more chance, I'll try to do the best I can. 
And that was Christmas Day of 1960. And by his grace, I haven't had a drink since then. Now, I went to, to a place called Damascus Home. And if you're new here, you know, if you're new here, I want you to, to listen from here on out. So many times you get guys like me and we stand up here and drink liquor for 40 minutes and then we say, and we went into AA and everything got all right. Sometimes we get a little mixed up up here on what we're going to say and we don't say what we should. Jimmy's not the only one that's nervous tonight. I've done this hundreds of times, but I'm nervous. I got some stick deodorant out and shook it up like that. That wasn't bad enough. I put it on my face. So I was mixed up. And sometimes, sometimes we hesitate to tell somebody that's sitting out there hurting in their sobriety, saying, man, this thing ain't going to work for me. It ain't working for me. I'm hurting here. Things are not falling into place. Listen. Listen. I went to a place called Damascus Home. It's a non-medical facility. You know, they talk about social setting detox now. Hell, that was social a long time ago. No medicine. Worst shape that I've ever been in in my life. DT. Seizures. All that stuff. I went through it. I couldn't fill out an application. I couldn't, didn't know my family's name. I didn't know mine. So why should I know that? After 12 days, I had a clear thought. Those guys sat on me, and they gave me honey and orange juice, and they gave me buttermilk, and they walked the halls with me, and they carried me to the bathroom, and they gave me showers and baths. I don't remember it. But after 12 days, I had a clear thought. Now, heretofore, when I'd come to in one of these drying out places and have a good thought, and I didn't never had a clear thought up until that day. But my first thought would be I've got to get out and make a bundle of money to impress a lot of people and buy some love back that I've lost. Now, that was my first thought prior to this. But my first thought this day was how sick I'd been how sick I'd been, and I didn't want to be that sick anymore. I was sick of being sick. And the second thought that came through my mind were the eyes and the people from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, if I live, I'm going back there. And every day since then, those two thoughts have been the first thing in my mind upon awakening. And I hope that I never, never, ever awaken again that these, that these thoughts don't go through my mind because I don't ever want to forget how sick I was and I don't ever want to forget you because you didn't ask any questions. You said, we've been there and we can help you. It was there at this treatment facility 
that I went back into Alcoholics Anonymous and I was looking for a way to stay sober. And there's a great deal of difference in looking for it and going there. But I went to Alcoholics Anonymous looking for a way to stay sober. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous in a suit that was given to me from this place, and I'm grateful for it. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous with a job that an AA member gave me. He didn't need any help. He really didn't, but he gave me a job. I went back to work making a third of what I was accustomed to making, and that was all right because I wasn't a big shot anymore. And I accounted for the bucks that I had. And it's amazing how little we need. Amazing, really. But I went to Alcoholics Anonymous just like that. Cirrhosis of the liver. I really wasn't able to hold that job but I knew that I had to. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, don't miss a meeting. And I didn't miss but one meeting. The first year, and my sponsor asked me then, he said, where were you last night? I said, I was sick. He said, which hospital were you in? <laughs> and he told me then that I'd never have anything wrong with me any worse than alcoholism. He said, you might die but you'll never have nothing wrong with you worse than alcoholism. And you need to go there to the place to get the treatment for it. And I'm glad tonight to tell you that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and it was hard-nosed AA. They didn't accept the answers that some of us do now. They didn't tell you, well, you don't have to do this, and you don't have to do that. They didn't tell you anything not to do. They told you everything to do, and you better do it. You know, my sponsor, I told him I had to have my wife back. I said, it just got, I said, it's easy for you to stay sober. You've got your family, and you've got everything, all these material things, and it's easy for you to stay sober. But I've got to have my family back in order for me to stay sober. He said, the book don't say that. That's the first time I read the book to prove him out a lie, and it's in there. It says wife or no wife, family or no family, job or no job. My sobriety was not dependent upon people. It was dependent upon my willingness to clean house and trust in God. And I didn't like it. If you knew, I didn't like it any better than you did. But my wife told me that she never had any intentions of ever living with me again. So I haven't got my wife back. You know, that's been 21 and a half years ago, Ralph. I don't believe she's coming back. But I didn't like most alcoholics, you know. I got real impatient, and I married another one. Met her in Alcoholics Anonymous. She's here with me tonight. She's, she's a great gal. 
But I didn't get that, and I didn't get the job, and I didn't get the prestige that I thought I was supposed to have. And I was a mixed-up young man. I didn't ask this guy to be my sponsor. He didn't tell me he was going to be my sponsor. The group said, you are his sponsor. And he said, I don't like it any better than you do, son. But they've asked me, because I was a challenge, babe. Don't forget it, I was a real challenge. I didn't want to drink, so I didn't, I didn't fit with the losers. And I didn't want to do the things that was necessary to recover from alcoholism, so I didn't fit with the winners. I was just sort of hanging loose. And they were worried about me. So this is when we started working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you did it, it was his way or the highway. Simple. And, and you know, I'm glad tonight. I'm glad tonight that it was that way with me. I heard the speakers talk and they said, they were talking about the fringe benefits that had been given to them through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, I want that. You know, I want that. I wanted that, but I wasn't willing to work for it. And I wondered why these things weren't happening to me. I wondered why things were not falling into place. I wonder why that slight hurt was coming back right here. I wondered why. And the reason why is because I had been listening to some of these yo-yos that come around Alcoholics Anonymous and they have all these good sayings. Good sayings like AA is like a cafeteria line. Take what you want and leave the rest. That's what I did. And I was hurting like hell right here. But I listened to him. And that's not so. It's not like a cafeteria line. It's like one, two, three, four, five through 12. That's what it's like. And I was wanting to skip over the meat of the program. I was wanting to do that, but I could not. I listened to these speakers that said the one that got up earliest this morning has been sober the longest. That sounds pretty good if you was drunk last week and got up at four this morning. But you know, I listen to garbage like that. I listen to people that said there are no must in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there aren't any must if you don't want to stay sober. But if you want to stay sober, there are many must that, that have to be dealt with and reckoned with and worked on. Many must. There are a lot of things. You know, most of my calls today, and I'm not like this, most of my calls today that I get come from these guys that get up here behind a podium and says, I'm always available. Call me anytime. You know, my number is so-and-so. And they call me and says, I tried to call old so-and-so that said call him anytime, but I can't get him. You know, now that... <laughs> But that impressed me back then, but you never could get none of them guys that said, call me anytime. The only one I could get was that loud mouth that was my sponsor. I could get him anytime, and if I didn't want him, he got me. But I listened to these things. 
But I, if you're here tonight and you are really looking for a way to recover from alcoholism, I would advise you to pick up a tool that I was asked to use when I, when I decided that I wanted to recover from alcoholism, and that's the book called Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that book was given to me a key that opened the future for me. Now, there had to be some hurting going along with this deflation of ego in depth. There had to be some hurting. And, you know, I don't want to talk about the book too much tonight. There's nobody in the, on the face of this earth that believes in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous any more than I do, and there's nobody that talks about it any better than old Joe that's going to talk tomorrow night. So I'm going to tell you how I worked it, and then Joe will talk about the book tomorrow night. I know he will. I know he will. But then I started trying to apply Alcoholics Anonymous and what they said in my life. And I didn't like the soul searching. I didn't like the leveling of my pride that's necessary for us to recover from alcoholism. I never have seen anybody yet that said, I want to go out here and get this pride level. Mm -mm, they don't do it. We resist it. We resisted, and I resisted it. But I was faced with a situation. I was faced with a situation of either going all the way back to my old thinking or moving ahead. Moving ahead. And he said, if you move ahead, you'll hurt for a while, but you'll get better. And he's right. It was hard. I know somebody in my group asked me not too long ago, said, when is easy for you to stay sober, it looks like? When does it get easy? I said, soon as the hard part's over. <laughs> does. But it was a hard part for me. And I had to go through this thing step by step. And I handled it like most of you do. Back when God lifted me up, I wasn't calling on him every day. I'd call on him once a week like a garbage man. I've got all this garbage up. Come over here and get it. Instead of using him and calling on him every day, I'd wait until I got into a corner. And I said, God, hit me one more time. I started using God on a daily basis in my life. I started communicating with him every day of my life. I started listening it's something that i'd never done before in my life i started listening and i started recognizing what god had done for me in my life and i made an effort i put forth a maximum effort on my part and when i did when i did things started working for me in my life the things that i had really looked for in the bottle the relief that I used to search in the bottle came to me through the steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, I know that new freedom today. It promises me a new freedom and a new happiness. Not freedom from alcohol. 
Uh-uh. Didn't promise me freedom from Alan. Freedom from me. Freedom from the bondage of self. Any fool could know, including me, that I didn't need freedom from alcohol. I was free from alcohol. But I needed freedom from me. I needed freedom from the thoughts and the things that obsessed me. And I was given that freedom. It says I'm going to know a new happiness. And I do. God, I know happiness. Happy in my sobriety. As long as I'm serious about my recovery, I can be happy in my sobriety. And you can too. But I know that freedom and happiness today. The fear of people has gone because steps eight and nine took care of that. The freedom of economic security, that's gone. I don't worry about that anymore because you taught me everything I need to know about faith. I watched you in action. You didn't write something down. You showed me how to do it. You showed me faith in action, and I just followed the example. It's what I did. These promises in this book have come true in my life. But some hurting had to be done. Some hurting had to be done in order for me to accomplish this. And if you're here tonight, and you're new, and you're experiencing some hurt, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. You stick with the winners. You keep coming back, and the hurt will go away. You might be like I was. I wanted to take my past, and I wanted to put it in the largest safe in the world and lock it up so nobody, nobody would ever know. But this book tells me that I will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. It even goes so far as to say, my past. My past can be used to help somebody else. God, how true it is. How true it is. Don't, don't throw that past away. Don't do it. Utilize it. There's so many things in my past that I could cry about. But with God in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, today they're the greatest joys that I know. So this program allows everything to run full circle in my life. My sponsor made me do some steps. He made me make some amends. And I'm going to close by telling you some of the miraculous things that have happened how God has took something that was tormenting me, how he's took something that was a misery in my life and made it a blessing. My sponsor made me go to a judge there that had practically raised me. He'd introduced, he'd sponsored me into why when I was a kid. He introduced me to my wife. He helped me in business. He, he sponsored me in the Civitan Club. And then I started coming before him for numerous offenses. And he kept them hidden for a while. And finally, I stood before him one day, and he said, 
it gave me an active sentence. And I waited for him to say suspended, but he hadn't said it yet. And I went, and I served this time, and I hated every day of it, and I hated him, and I resented him. And I told my sponsor that I resented him. He said, you are going to him. You are going to see him, and you are going to tell him that you don't hold it against him for what he had to do. You're going to tell him that whether you mean it or not. And I went to him. I didn't want to. I didn't want to, and I told him that I realized that he had done what he had to do. And I wanted him to know that there was no malice in my heart. And that old man started crying. And big tears ran down his eyes. And big tears ran down my eyes. Because I suddenly realized that I couldn't hold any malice any longer. That what I said was the truth, whether I meant it or not. In, in the book, the Bible says, know the truth know the truth and this book of Alcoholics Anonymous told me that the truth would set me free too so that old man called me into court one day open court and we had some men sitting on the front row there that didn't look good feel good or smell good they'd been in jail all night in the drunk tank and it was opening day and in Superior Court and he said gentlemen before we start this session of court, we're going to take some guilty pleas. And these men had pleaded guilty to public drunkenness. And he said, at one time, this man was exactly like you are. And today, he's one of our most respected, beloved citizens. And if you'd like to be released in his custody, I'll allow this to be done. And I stood there at open court, and I cried again because I knew that this was his way of saying, you're all right with me. And so one of the darkest things and one of the worst thoughts in my life had been transformed into a blessing. See, two of those guys are sober still. One of them spent some time with me the other day, but that's not the point. The point is I started getting rid of some hate in my life. I hated my daddy and a little Al-Anon lady from Texas told me. She said, I prayed for my daddy and I got better. Daddy didn't do much better, but I did. And I started praying for my daddy and it wasn't much to begin with. I just said, God bless him. And then I could say, God bless him and mean it. And finally, I could say, God bless him and take care of him because I love him. And I knew that everything was all right with my daddy knew that everything was all right with my daddy. He died about 14 years ago, and my wife and my sister and I went down to South Carolina to his funeral, and we got there about an hour before his funeral service, and we were allowed to go in and see him. And instead of the traditional handkerchief in his pocket, my daddy had a serenity prayer pen in his pocket. He'd been sober over three months when he died. Now, I could handle that, but I couldn't have handled it 
if I still had those resentments, if I still had those resentments, I never would have been able to handle it. So God took another valley in my life and lifted me to a peak, another full circle. My sister was with me, and she talked, we, Marion and I talked freely of what had been given to us in Alcoholics Anonymous, and she asked questions. And a few years ago, my sister called me one day, and she said, I want to be like you. And she was allowed to get sober in this fellowship. And she stayed sober for two years. And she was given a choice to drink or not drink. A year or so ago, she made that choice to go back out there. But I'm grateful today that, that she was given that opportunity. She rode back from a retreat with Joe and Lubell, and she cherished that so much. But she chose to go back, and I'm sorry. But I had that choice, and she had it. And I'm glad that she had an opportunity to make that choice. My daughter, the first year I was sober, I carried a lot of gifts. I wanted to buy her love back. She said, I don't love you. You're not my daddy, and I don't want your gifts. And I'd like to kill me. And I cried tears as big as the end of my finger. But you told me to be patient. So I was impatiently patient. That's the best I could do. And she started to understanding a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. And when she graduated from high school, she graduated with honors. And I told her that I was proud of her in spite of the way that I'd done. And she said, Dad, I don't want you to say yourself short. If I had to choose to be like anybody, I don't want to be like you. When I went to Damascus home, it seemed to me the most God-forsaken place I'd ever been. But you see, I was the most God-forsaken person that ever lived. So any place that I would have been, I wouldn't have been happy, or I wouldn't have been satisfied, and it would have had the same thoughts. And I walked those grounds and I cried. I cried tears of bitterness. I didn't want to be there. Didn't want to be anywhere. Sixteen years ago, I went back to Damascus home as superintendent of the place that I'd gotten sober at. And I walked those grounds again, and I, I cried tears. But they were tears of joy because I knew that within my heart, I had something. I had a message that I could give, the message that you gave me. So everything in my life, everything in my life that I considered humiliating to my character. Everything that I've handled the way the program says to handle it has become a blessing in my life. All of the amends that I've made today, most of them are still my best friends. So Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a cleansing effect on the inside. It's given me something to replace that garbage that I had. I thought I was no good. I thought I was strictly for the birds. But the book of Alcoholics Anonymous told me that deep down in every man, woman, and child 
is the basic fundamental of God. And we have to push this stuff, this crap that we take in over the years. It's covered up. It's covered up. But when we bring that stuff out, the godness in us seems to surface. And we know how to do good. And we know how to do right. Alcoholics Anonymous has done an awful lot for me. I can't begin to tell you I can't begin to repay what this program has done for me in my life. I can't begin to tell you how I feel about God. You know, I, I tell people God as I understand him, but I can't conceive of the depth of his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace and his understanding and his compassion. I have some of it to a degree. But I say that I understand God and then I become short with one of my fellow men. And I feel badly about it. But I wish today that in order for me to understand God better, I've got to have some of these traits and some of these characteristics that he's shown to me. I can't imagine what I'd do if somebody did me like I did God. He let me run my race. He let me do the things I wanted to do. And when I was almost dead, I said, give me one more chance. And he said, I love you. And I've got some people that are going to help you. And he gave me the greatest gift. Don't forget it. Not only me, but he gave it to you. He gave me the greatest gift that could ever be given an alcoholic. He gave me an opportunity to be a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. God help me if I can't give my fellow man that same opportunity. It's a real privilege be here with my friends and share my experience, strength, and hope. God bless you.